0: Just to mention to you, uh, Kanuuk was mentioning a bit about some of our upcoming events. We will be hosting an evening with the city councilor candidates on September 26th, starting at 6.30 at the Lethbridge Public Library. Uh, Get there early, seating may be limited. The following evening, September 27th, we may be hosting and mayoralty candidate evening, if anyone runs against Chris Spearman. So that's to be announced. All right, just to mention to you that um, because this is the 15th year of SOCPA as well as the 150th year of Canada, um, the Canadian government, and of course more than 15,000 years of our indigenous peoples, we, we have put together a little history of Sakna. And so it's a large book, a small book, and a postcard, which we are selling for $5. And this gives you a little bit of the history, how it came about, what we do, and what are some of the issues that we have covered. And these are available where, Knut? Knut, where are they available? Right here. Right here. Okay, next week's session will be Roy Pogorowski, and he's going to be talking on is the city of Lethbridge responding adequately to Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, TRC's recommendations. So I hope that you'll join us next week for that. Let's all welcome back our speaker, Dr. Lynn Kennedy. Okay. Oh, be taking questions, if anybody has any questions.
1: Okay. Oh, it's off, but if you need it, I'll turn it on. So. Hello.
0: Let's go ahead. It's on. Hello. Yeah. I
1: Hello.
2: just can't have all three mics on at
1: once, so just let My me know. My name is Kim
2: Peterson. Uh, thanks very much for your presentation. Uh, this is uh, timely topic. Uh, My question relates to uh, what happened in Charlottesville is obviously just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit more about uh, where this might be heading, given the fact that uh, President Trump is not particularly... uh, what should I say? Sympathetic to to uh, people as fighting against this racism and white supremacists. So I should say, as a historian, we're not usually predicting the theme of future. We hear the stories, so I can look backwards.
3: So I already know what happens. Um, but I do think um, there's certain trends that we can spot that um, um, that. There's certainly been an emboldening um, of the um, alt-right um, quite recently because, not just because of the new presidency, although that certainly has helped, or not helped. Mm-hmm.
4: Um,
3: But also, uh, I think the internet has a lot to do with this, That a lot, in the past, a lot of this was localized that, that they were certainly terrifying in their own place, um, but, but it was a local power structure and the internet has allowed various groups who wouldn't necessarily work together um, to now start cooperating with each other in quite terrible ways. And we saw that in Charlottesville, it was an unusual group of different types of racists. So I think it will get worse before it gets better would be my prediction. But, on a positive note, I also think that it has spawned a real grassroots resistance to the move uh, to this hatred because it's become so much more visible um, that, that people are realizing that they need to do something about it. Uh,
1: Mary Shellington, uh, thank you, Lynn, for an interesting talk and for your work you've done in all this area. Um, a couple of us, well three of us actually at our table were wondering where did the naming Kukwai's clan come from and wonder if you could expand
3: on that. Today. So that's a question we get a lot and there's not a clearly definitive answer. We think that they picked it, um, that they were all buddies, they were thinking this is a social club, sort of like a fraternity, and they thought it sounded like, um, Greek letters um, that went together. So there's not some sort of deep underlying meaning to it. Um, the outfit, though, they wanted to they wanted to hide their identity because the clan in the 1860s uh, was a secretive organization because it was so violent. Um, and they wanted to look like ghosts. They thought looking like glo- ghosts would um, scare the freed slaves. And then, so that's why they wear the funny hat and the, the, the sheets.
4: i my name is Michael am um, You often hear people talking about these various
2: groups and that they should be outlawed. Um, but if I heard your comments right, it didn't seem to do much good. I'm just wondering if you have any... What do you think about the government trying to control these people by outlawing the various groups?
3: So this is one of the um, places where Americans and Canadians are very different in terms of hate speech, that there's a much more absolute protection of free speech in the United States um, than there is in Canada against hate speech. Canada has hate speech laws and America um, doesn't. So that's, that's one of the reasons that banning these groups hasn't worked very well. And I think what happens is they largely go underground. Um, so, uh, when they're overtly uh, violent, um, they should be arrested for that, but I'm not sure it would work um, to just outlaw them. As in the 1870s, they found out with the Ku Klux Klan that Congress the Ku Klux Klan Act, that you can't do this anymore. So they just formed other paramilitary organizations like the Red Shirts and the White Camilla. Like, so they just changed their name, basically, and continued doing exactly what they were doing. So, so it's like,
2: you know, squishing Jell-O. <laughs> My name is Van Christie uh, Thank you so much, Dr. Kennedy, for taking the time to uh, prepare and uh, come here to deliver a, uh, a huge subject in uh, 30 minutes. Uh, be quite a challenge. <laughs> and congratulations, you did it a very effective way. Um, one of your comments regarding uh, one of uh, Luther King's uh, uh, statements uh, involving the, those people who are not right at the forefront of, of the uh, hatred that, that is shown by, by some of the extreme groups, but in the center, who do nothing, which might involve most of us in this room, um, is that group, uh, as far as you're aware, historically, uh, has that changed? Has it grown over the last few years? Uh, do you see a, a change in the attitude of uh, people accepting these things uh, just for, this, for the, for the uh, hope that it will maintain the status quo, economically and otherwise?
3: I don't think I would say that this period is any worse than any other period in history for the, the middle who doesn't want to stir things up. But give you a little context of when um, King was writing that, it's from his letters from the Birmingham jail in 1963. Um, and he had been actively protesting in Birmingham. Um, And jail, obviously. Um, And uh, he had nothing but a a newspaper and uh, a pencil, and he wrote this missive, and it's beautiful. You should read it. We should all be able to write so well with just a pencil and writing around a newspaper. Um, But he was specifically addressing other religious leaders um, who said they supported civil rights, um, but he was pushing too hard, Um, and so they, they were saying, wait. Justice will come. And his response is uh, would you say wait? um, If if you were facing these problems. Um, But I don't I don't think, I mean, I don't think this period is any worse um, in terms of most people sort of wanting to live their lives and turn a blind eye and not deal with what's around them because if for most of us, it doesn't affect us in a daily life. We have privilege protecting us. Um, and so th- there may be more people pushing back because they don't like to hear they have privilege, as people are talking more about um, privilege. But I think the group in the middle um, doesn't change a lot.
2: Douglas Mitchell, thank you very much for your talk. <laughs> I enlightening. I would like you to, if possible, uh, and you partly address that, To say something about the role of the religious right in this whole mess of things, we see it uh, day to day, and those who, what we call, mainline Christians, which of us has the truth? And uh, what would you say would be the role of these people? Because many of them uh, profess their their adherence to to the Christian message, and yet some of that makes you feel that maybe they're they're not quite on the right way.
3: If only I understood it. Um, But it it too has a really long history that a lot of the mainline churches, uh, like the Methodists for example, um, split first over slavery um, before the Civil War. Um, that the, they used their religion to defend slavery. So, so this history is a long one. It's not something unique, again, to today. Um, the, the sort of evangelical um, right um, has become much more organized, much more wealthy, um, and much more prominent, um, but I can't explain why. Yeah. I wish I knew, because then we could do something about it. But um, it's, it, um, part of it is because they're single issue voters um, and so they're willing to look away from race. And a lot of Trump voters will say, I voted for Trump, but I'm not racist. And my response to that is that you were willing to overlook racism in order to vote for so. it. get
4: political. <laughs> I'm Ken Sears, and just by way of interest I'm leaving for Charlottesville tomorrow actually. Uh, the trip was planned long before this happened. But, and just as another point of interest, the last time, the only time I've been to Charlottesville was about three years ago. And it's the whitest damn town I've ever been in my life. It's, uh, it's noticeably. You walk across the University of Virginia campus and to see anyone who is not middle-class Caucasian, it's almost jarring because it's such a rare event. So different from this room. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I <mean> younger, younger. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. Although Charlottesville
3: yes. is a relatively liberal city in the context that it's in, mm-hmm. um, so it raises questions about these white moderates um, living in in uh, in this context, right? The, that they have all this privilege, and to some extent they at least on the
4: right side but how much so? Okay, but the question I guess I have is a historical question. Um, during the Civil War one of the statements that came out sort of consistently came out of the Army in Virginia particularly were soldiers writing home or in their memoirs saying it's a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. It was a class thing not just, it, w- it wasn't just race, there was also the, the class element that happened there and yet after the Civil War from Reconstruction it seems to me that the South culturally won the Civil War Southern, Southern mythologies permeate the American psyche and I think they're beginning to slowly fade I hope they're beginning to slowly fade but can you talk a little bit about that
3: well, one of my favorite exam questions on the midterm is the self, uh, lost the Civil War, but won the peace. So you're prepared for that. Um, discuss. Um, so uh, there's certainly, um, what, what happened is that the, the North won the Civil War. Um, they freed the slaves, but of course the North was as racist as the south in, in most instances. And they weren't willing to to dedicate the resources. And, and there is no easy solution. I asked my students, well, so what would you do? And they come up with things, and then they're like, no, that wouldn't work, because you can't, you can you can occupy, and the north did, but that doesn't change the hearts and minds of people. How do you protect um, the, the freedmen? Um, it usually involves a lot of money that um, the, the United States wasn't willing to invest in the land that they just defeated, they also wanted to bring the country back together. Um, And ultimately, by the end, when segregation was being established, they decided that it was more important to have a united country than to protect um, African Americans. Um, And so there was a conscious political decision that was made that set the course um, of that. Does that answer your question, or go somewhere. Okay. It it certainly was a poor man's, uh, a rich man's war, a poor man's fight, and um, there were brutal conscription laws in the South, so if you didn't want to fight, um, you could be dragged, um, they they would come get you and make you fight, but people who celebrate their ancestors in fighting in the Civil War for the South um, never talk about how it was so horrible that they had to fight for a cause they didn't. Um, when it's celebrated now, it's, it's like they were doing what they thought was right to protect the Southern way of life. And um, so people's memories of that have certainly
5: drifted. Hi, my name is Peter Real. And my, my point is sort of like on the hatred part. Uh, like you have, an enlightened person would treat everyone individually on their own merits, but uh, you can't stop the hatred in the brain. Like, there's no brain police. So how do we get education to liberate people to be more equal? Like, I mean, you know, like I say, my neighbor's apple tree has more apples than mine, so I hate him. You know, where does hatred begin? And then it just bubbles over. Like, it's a lot of these are poor southerners whose factories have closed because robots have replaced them. And, I mean, this is the beginning of, hey, you, you want to let it out somewhere. So how can our society move on and become more tolerant of every difference?
3: Well, if I had the answer to that. <laughs> well, okay. We talk about this all the time in my civil rights class when I drive my students crazy. Um, because they're students, uh, university students, so they believe firmly that education is the answer. Um, And if we just educate children um, to not hate, then everything will be fine. And then I point out to them that schools were segregated, um, schools are based on where you live, and neighborhoods are segregated. So how do you get students to be together and interact when they're young um, and you force people to live together and they're like, no, you can't do that. Um, and it, it's an untenable, it, it's a very difficult solution, which is why we're still dealing with it, right? That, that we think it's easy. I think you have to, everybody has to look at themselves and um, you know, maybe each one, each one. I'm not sure what the answer is. I wish I knew, it, I really do.
6: Thank you, Len. My name is Tan Mitsui. I'm looking at that picture on the right. Uh, Then my question is, can you really repair the mistakes in history? From my experience, 1982, we Japanese Canadians started redress movement to fight the Trudeau government to recognize the mistake that Canadian government made against Japanese Canadians. And Trudeau's answer was, you cannot repair the damage done by our ancestors. And Margaret Somerville, who's a history professor at Oxford, also said the same thing. How far can
4: you go back to repair the history? That's my question. And again, it's
3: it's an a possible question? I'm not sure that you can, you can't write history, but you can understand it um, and understand how, what happened in the past um, shapes what's going on now and what needs to be done um, to, to fix it. So uh, at the end of the civil rights, we're talking about things like affirmative action and the understanding that, w- as a um, liberal democracy, we like to talk about an equal playing field. And that's over now. We can't, the history teaches us that there, there's never going to be an equal playing field. Um, and so then the question has to become not how to make it equal, but how to make it just. Um, and, and if you think about African American slaves, when they were uh, freed, they were freed, but they were in a deep hole. So how do you build the ladder out of the hole? You can't just pull the ladder out of the hole and say, you're free, no, now move on. And so, it, but that's what happened. Um, so the, they remained in the hole. Um, and so it got deeper and deeper. The um, civil rights tried to rectify it somewhat. There was a, that's what the civil rights movement was about. It was a movement to try to to reckon with the past. Not cure the past, but reckon with it um, and move forward. Um... There's questions about things like reparations, but again, that's a very difficult um, question to deal with and, and how, you, how you implement those sorts of things. So, um, you have, but I think knowing about the past is the first step in understanding the privilege um, that you have or don't have in society and where it comes from. Uh,
6: I'm trying page. I much enjoyed your presentation. Uh, I can't agree with you though on the situation now being no different than it was earlier in terms of the rise of populism and racism at all. It's not just North America. Look at the populist governments in Europe. Look at the problem, and it's not just Europe. Look at the problems going on right now in Myanmar question. Okay, um, yes, moderator, I'm coming to my question. Thank you very much, Trevor. Um Perhaps you could point to key points historically, I mean you did emphasize you're a historian, <laughs> on whether you think the attitude that exists today in the United States and Canada <laughs> are different. And if so, with regard to the 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 topic, and if so, why? <clears throat> and my second question, which is a very small one, I was told quite recently, and I haven't checked it out, that Donald Trump's grandfather was a grand wizard of the KKK. Perhaps you could tell us whether that's true or false. Father. Thank His you. Father. He's father. He's father. Well, I just told his grandfather. So, I can tell okay. you that his father was arrested
3: at a KKK rally, um, what his rank was I on okay. Um So, so it was in New York City, uh, which also gives you an indication of the, uh, where the clan was at that time. It wasn't just a Southern organization. But I would, I'm not saying that it's better or worse. Historians don't deal in better or worse in times. We uh, don't believe there's a constant progress. But I would argue, if you were an African American, certainly um, it's bad now. But you're not being—it's not you're not being lynched. Um, you're not being refused the right um, to work or vote. Um, you're not being refused the right to go to school. Um, so things have progressed um, in the legal sense. Um, which makes the insidious uh, sense of racism seem all the more worse um, because it's way harder to get rid of. Um, So people are smiling at you in public um, but not being supportive in private. So how do you fix that? Um, But you also uh, have certain protections in the law.
6: And the difference between the situation now vis-a-vis racism with canadians and americans i mean focus on saskatchewan if you like
3: well my remark about saskatchewan was in the 1920s uh, not now so I, I don't know anything about saskatchewan now i don't study canadian history um certainly um I, the canadian
1: But no, I would or say, or sociology.
3: So answer the question. But I would say that that again, it's the difference between overt and insidious, right? That, that um, Canadians tend to be less overtly racist. Um, there's not the same organizational structures in most places, um, but they also um, don't interact in the same way, or they have different prejudices. So, so African Americans here there's not that many of them, so the hatred gets focused on other people. So we can deal with the Indigenous people and, and, and what is happening there. So I wouldn't, I would never say the Canadians are better than Americans at this, and a part of what I try to do to my Canadian students is remind them that there was slavery in Canada, um, that there was segregation in Canada, um, and so you can't just say, oh, those people, they're different from us. It was a bigger problem because the groups were bigger. Um, and Americans do everything on an extreme level. Um, but I I, wouldn't, I I think you're putting words in my mouth to say that
0: no, i No, i
6: was asking for key indicators as to why there is a difference if you believe there's a difference. Um,
0: okay, thank you, Trevor. I don't. Ian?
4: Ian McLaughlin. Thank you, Lynn, for a wonderful talk. I'm interested in the daughters.
0: Hi.
6: Daughters
4: of the Confederacy. Why did they identify as daughters, not sisters, mothers, wives? What did they have in common with the daughters of the Empire? And what was their position on more progressive things like suffrage and gender? So the, the daughters,
3: because they're formed 30 years after, so they're um, taking over from the Ladies' Memorials uh, Association, which were the wives and sisters of um, of the soldiers, but, at, but 30 years later, they're the daughters. They didn't actually, most of them, experience the Civil War in any way. Um, and they're also a counterpart to the Sons of Confederacy. Um, and their counterpart to the daughters of the American Revolution, yes. um, so all of the, that's where that comes from. Um, some of them, actually, were um, suffrage uh, advocates for suffrage, um, so that they could put forward their agenda. They were certainly involved in things like um, going a- and um, I'm looking for the word here, petitioning the government. Um, They petitioned them particularly about education and textbooks so that the war was properly represented to Southern students Um, they had a great influence on that. They also petitioned about um, holidays um, and what holidays should be celebrated and and several Southern states still don't celebrate Martin Luther King Day but they do celebrate um, Jefferson Davis is the President of the Confederacy's birthday and that has to do with the lobbying Of the UDC, but they would say they're just ladies, they don't have any um, place in politics. But they (laughs) surely did.
0: (laughs) Terry, last question.
4: Thank you, moderator. Yes, okay, go ahead. Terry Shellington, anyway, thank you very much for a very fascinating presentation. I'm gonna try to slip in two questions Mm -hmm. if I get past the really tough moderator. (laughs) Um, um, I'm curious you seem to be a Canadian from your bio so I'm curious about where this passion for studying the southern culture in the states comes from, but my major question is as an observer of Americans the nation seems to be riddled with polarities and rabid, deeply felt polarities that make, for example politics in the Senate and the House of Representatives almost impossible (coughs) Uh, and I, I know that Canadians uh, have rabid feelings and but, but we don't seem to be quite as fanatical about many things where does the anger and the polarities it, does it go back to a civil war that never was finished or why the polarities so
3: the question about the polarities answers your first question that I had, first I had some very good American history professors um, and I was fascinated by the extremism of the American experience and Canadians had racism slavery Um, And there was more people doing crazy things in American history and I wanted a piece of that. So that's why I became an American historian. Um, And the South was the most extreme of that and the most interesting stories. Where the the polarities come from, you know, even before the Civil War, there's a big debate in American history before the Civil War about whether the South and the North were more alike or more different um, and it's a choice, right? That, that if you look at it empirically, the South and the North are very similar. They speak the same language, they're, they're a Christian nation, they're both industrializing. Um, the North is moving away from slavery, it's, but it's racist. But they've made a choice that we're different than you. Um, that, that we need to separate because we're so different. Um, it, they're a little bit like an angry couple. We um, have so much in common. Um, but have decided they hate each other, right? And so they, they need to divorce. And, and it's been a choice both back and forth. As I said, um, in the, after the Reconstruction era, they made a choice to be, were very similar um, in, in our political views, and there wasn't such regional distinction. Um, and it, it ebbs and flows in, in many ways. So um, why there's so much hatred now, There's a, Part of it is is sort of the radicalization of political positions um, and and leadership in that way. Um, But I'm not entirely sure. Again, I don't have many solutions for you because I can only look backwards.
1: Thanks again, Lynn. Mary Shillington, I have an announcement, but also a similar situation. Like you talked about how as Canadians we have our own prejudices discriminating against certain people. And so as a group here today, there's a petition out on the table that gives us a chance to take a stand about some discrimination against special needs people who uh, presently, if you have a, a child who has special needs, you cannot when you die in your will, leave money to them. Uh, it, 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 because it will affect their age and so there is a, a, petition, a petition here and a, 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 a MLA working on this uh, to establish the Hanson Trust in Alberta and if you want more information about this the petitions out there it's very simple uh, but both Bev and I could give you some information okay so it gives us a chance to do something about discrimination
3: thank you and can I just So I asked this question during my talk, but um, I've never gotten an answer about the people driving around in their trucks, always a truck, Um, with um, the Confederate license plate. And so if anybody has an answer to that question, um, I'd love to know what they're trying
4: these kids grew up doing watching
6: Dukes
3: of Hazzard.
6: And that was a big symbol. That's the flag on the car.
1: So it kind of just came out of the TV culture for a lot of us. Your mic's on for when you need it. Your mic's on. No. Okay. Okay. It was a
6: fast car. We saw a car. Okay. It so I think.